There is a type <clears throat> of common speech mistake that people make. I'm one of those people, and I make it commonly. And that is when I am thinking about one thing while talking about another thing, one of the words that fits in well with what I'm thinking ends up replacing the right word for what I'm saying. Can any of you understand what I'm talking about, this kind of mistake? And one of the most common ways that happens in my teaching is between the books of Daniel and Revelation, particularly between Daniel 12 and Revelation 12. You don't need to turn to either one of those. It won't help in this case. But you understand, both those chapters have 12. They both have Michael. They both have the 1260-day prophecy. And in my mind, Daniel and Revelation are very related to each other already. So those chapters are in such a similar box that often when I'm intending to say Daniel 12, I say Revelation 12. And often when I'm intending to say Revelation 12, I say Daniel 12. There is another book like that that I often mix up with Revelation. Actually, it's Romans. I mean that often when I'm intending to say Romans such and such, because I'm so often thinking about Revelation, I say Revelation such and such. And I usually don't catch that I did it either until my students say it doesn't say that, and then we figure out what's going on. And the reason I told you all that is because I, that obviously happened when I was typing the scripture for this service. I was thinking Romans, and I typed Revelation, and so you heard a most interesting scripture, Revelation uh, 14, or verse 4, and 10 through 12, and I almost, went, I almost wanted to preach on it when I heard it. <laughs> but if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14, I want to show you what I intended to type. Romans 14, and we're looking at verse 4. Romans 14 and verse 4. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Yes, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. And verse 10, but why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Today we're talking about, in this particular sermon, how to arrive at your own set of values in such a way that they'll be the right set of values, in such a way that you won't end up being rebellious, in such a way that you'll end up being content when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And before I go into methods that are so related to arriving at a correct set of values, I want us to catch this idea in verse 4. That is that 
it is inappropriate for me to evaluate your standing before God on the basis of your conclusions. And it is inappropriate for you to evaluate my standing before God on the basis of my conclusions. I want to say this in a different way where you can see it in, as it is in the passage. Martin Luther and Karlstadt debated over one issue I mentioned last evening, and that was the Sabbath. Martin Luther was wrong, and Karlstadt was right. But it would be wrong to conclude from that that Martin Luther was not consecrated. And in fact, it might even be premature to conclude from that that Karlstadt was consecrated. I would like to create in your mind an understanding that there is a disconnect between accuracy of conclusions and the consecration of the heart. Consecration leads to accuracy, but it often does it on a very slow and laborious journey. And accuracy sometimes comes through some other means than consecration. For example, believing what someone told you that happened to be consecrated, or growing up in a home that happened to teach you the right conclusions. Do you follow what I'm saying? That there's quite a disconnect between being accurate and being consecrated. It might be interesting to you to know that John Bunyan, the one who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, the one that Ellen White writes so glowingly about in The Great Controversy, that he wrote quite a number of books. And one of his books is about the Seventh-day Sabbath. The entire book is written to show that it's no longer binding on us on this planet. It's quite a well-written book. And I think I'd almost say I don't recommend reading it. But I cannot, on the basis of reading that book, say that John Bunyan was not a consecrated man. Do you understand the point I'm trying to communicate to you? It's this point in verse 4. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? Who did John Bunyan serve? It was the Lord Jesus that he had a duty to serve. Whether he served him or not, that was his duty. And that's what the verse is saying, is that every man has a duty to serve the Lord Jesus himself. And I cannot, by looking at how, it's none of my business to evaluate how well he serves him. I just hope that you can see that I'm not making this up, that it's in the passage. Who are you that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Does the passage say that everyone is going to stand? It doesn't, but it says I'm not the one that can figure out who is which. So we're going to start with the last trick of the devil and move into how to form your own values. The last trick of the devil is related to this very point. It's the nice people are right trick. I can think of two stories in my own short life related to this. I was in Maine, and I met a lady who at one point had been studying with Jehovah's Witnesses at one time in the week, and was Seventh-day Adventist at another time in the week. She was learning a lot from both camps. And some of the things they have in common, right? There are some things in there in common. 
And then, unfortunately, her house burned to the ground. The Adventist church offered something like some clothes and a few hundred dollars. And the local Watchtower Society rebuilt her house. It was nice of them to do that, don't you think? I'm sure there was some some sincerity in that service. And God doesn't overlook the sincerity of even erroneous people. But it was a mistake on the part of that sister to conclude that the Jehovah's Witnesses were right because they were nice. That is what she concluded when I met her. She was a Jehovah's Witness. The second story happened in the Bahamas. A lady was studying. She had just joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but while she was there, she began studying with members of the Shepherd's Rod, who were also Seventh-day Adventists. They were part of the same denomination, but they had different views than the others in their church. And while that was going on, a hurricane came to that island. It was one of those ones we heard about here in this country. And it took the roof off her home. It took the roof off a lot of homes. And the local Seventh Adventist Church wasn't able to help her out particularly. A lot of them were suffering, and that was what they concluded as far as what they could. Can you understand their perspective if a lot of people lost? I'm not saying that they were mean, but listen carefully. But the shepherd's rod persons that she was studying with put a new roof on her home. And she concluded that they were right. And can you just understand that that just doesn't follow in terms of logic? But it's very difficult for young people and also simple-minded adults to understand so that it becomes a very normal trick of the devil to bring a young person who has learned a great deal about values into contact often with a sincerely consecrated, very sweet and kind person who knows very little about values. And often in this scenario, this young person contrasts the sweetness of his previous teachers with the sweetness of his current teacher and concludes on the basis of the sweetness that his current teacher is more accurate than his previous teacher. We should be willing to confess and to be repentant and sorry for the fact that we might fit into the category of being less sweet. God does require sweetness. And it is just a normal trick of the devil to lead some people to focus all their building on accuracy and lead others to focus all their building on sweetness such that this clamp ends up being right but not sweet and this camp ends up being sweet but not right and that just really works to the devil's advantage. And I hope that you in this congregation would conclude to work to the end of being right and sweet at the same time. It would just so undermine many of the devil's efforts on this planet. Okay, we're talking about how to form values, and I guess we started out by saying that one way that doesn't work. It won't work to form your values on the basis of copying the sweetest person you know. It won't work. Much better would be to copy the sweetness of the sweetest person you know, but not their values. 
Their sweetness may have been learned from Jesus, while their values came from some other place entirely. If you're going to learn values, you're going to have to go to the source of the accuracy. This also is the source of the sweetness. And it's just a, a mess to try to get one thing or the other out of it without, without taking both. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5, we're talking about six, or it might turn into seven, principles of how to arrive at true conclusions about values. Proverbs chapter 5, looking at verse 11. It's an incredible passage. And thou mourn at the last when thy flesh and thy body are consumed. Here we are reading about the thoughts of a potential person in the lake of fire. And the wise man, with an insight from heaven, tells you what kind of thoughts that you don't want to be thinking in the lake of fire. Of course, you don't want to be in the lake of fire. And by looking at what the thoughts of someone in the lake of fire are, you might learn a good hint about how not to be there. Proverbs 5, verse 11 And thou mourn at the last when thy flesh and thy body are consumed, and say, How have I hated instruction, and my heart despised reproof, and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined mine ear to them that instructed me. I was almost in all mischievousness, that's what I'm saying for the evil there, in the midst of the congregation and assembly. My first principle this morning is don't start from scratch. When it comes to making values, God never intended that each generation would start over. He never intended that I would have to begin at the same place that my parents had to begin. He intended the church would be a growing process and that we would be learning. And in fact, you can, you, I teach church history for a living, and one of my most enjoyable lectures to give is what I call the progression of truth, where you can just show through the ages how God permeated society with truths that not only were true, but were foundational to the next truth that he intended to put in society. And so the it's not like all society followed, but the, what led up to the great awakening and the preparation for the advent began with accepting a few foundational ideas. This idea of the progression of truth is important. And you never will, for example, become a Sabbatarian Adventist if you begin from scratch trying to figure out, even if the Bible is a reliable book, and you don't have help from the body of people that God has already been teaching. God never intended that we would be a bunch of independent atoms. And so his normal method is that he gives you truth for me and gives me truth for you. Do you see that it's stealing? If I give you $5 and tell you to please pass it on to my wife, and you pocket it. That even though I put it in your hand willingly, 
to pocket it is theft because when I gave it to you, I didn't give it to you for you. Giving, when you accepted it from my hand, in a way, you committed to do with it what I asked you to do with it. If you weren't willing to do that, you should have refused to have taken it. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? That is the way the Bible portrays the way God gives me truth. He gives me truth such that I am a debtor both to the Greek and to the barbarian, both to the wise and to the unwise. I have a responsibility to them because the truth that was given to me was given to me for them. So Jeremiah 23 speaks about people who steal God's words, everyone from his neighbor. How do you steal God's words from your neighbor? It's not that you go to his house and take the words away. He, the, the words never were in his house. The words for the neighbor were given to you. And when we don't share them, that is itself a type of theft. But I'm moving to a different sermon altogether, and I want to come back and say that when you begin forming your values, point one is don't begin from scratch. Realize that God is the one who intended that there would be teachers in the church. He's the one that intended that there would be instruction. He said reproofs of instruction are the way of life. And in fact, this idea of teaching coming your direction God understands that you'd only have about 70 years to get things straight, sometimes only five. And in the process, he, is, or he often brings people right to you because he doesn't want you to wait till you're age 92 to finally find it on your own digging process. Do you understand what I'm communicating? But that method of his, of bringing truth into your field of vision, just doesn't work if you're trying to start from scratch. Let's move to point two, and it might help explain point one. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three. And we're looking at verse three. It says, for what if some of them did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Not at all. Whenever you see the word God forbid in the Bible, read it not at all. Because at least in the King James Version, every single time it appears, neither the word God nor the word forbid is in the Greek. It's just the way in the 16th century that men said not at all. So they would come to the Greek word that said no, no, which means not at all, and they would write God forbid. I don't know if that will be helpful to you, but it was helpful for me when I found it. Not at all, yea, let God be true, and every man, what's it say? A liar, as it is written. The second point is that you're going to have to have confidence in God and not confidence in men. Do you see that in those two verses, both of those ideas? Confidence in God and not confidence in men? And how does that fit with the first one, where we need to be open to teaching? This is how it fits. When I am listening to you teaching me, when you're sharing with me, I am not looking for your conclusions. I am looking for your data. I'm interested in what you think as far as your conclusion, but that's more of a curiosity factor with me. What I really want to know in terms of helping me is, why do you think that? Do you follow what I'm communicating? 
So I don't want to begin with scratch, from scratch. I really want to benefit from my teachers. I want to benefit from what the church has been built up to know. I want to learn from these things. I want to sit humbly, as it were, at your feet, but not to imbibe your conclusions. Rather, I really want to know your reasons. That's how I can trust in God through you, without trusting in you. I'm looking at what God has already shown you. I'm not trusting your judgment, but I'm trusting the word of God that you have already found, the counsels you've already learned. I'm trusting the truth that he sent your way for me. I think you can see what I'm talking about. This really is the benefit, for example, of parents when young people are forming their values. You don't have to assume, young people, that your parents are consecrated to gain this benefit from them. You don't even have to assume that they're good people. All you have to assume is that maybe somewhere along the line they might have run into some sort of truth from God. And wouldn't you like to know what reasons they have for what they think? It's beautiful to ask and find out if they have any. Sometimes they don't have any. And if they don't have any, it isn't necessarily evidence that they're wrong. It's just evidence that they, they might not have come to the truth the right way. Is that, do you follow what I'm communicating? And what you need to gather from some source, wherever you can find it, is what is the data? What are the things that God has taught the various people? I want to show you a very interesting passage to me. Turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 36. <clears throat> Young people in their mid-twenties have a few questions that are particularly perplexing to them quite often. And one that I think I've heard probably around 40,000 times is, how do I know who God wants me to marry? I didn't calculate that number. It was an impulse. Numbers chapter 36, and we're looking at verse 6. This is the thing which the Lord doth command concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Zelophehad, something like that. Saying, let them marry to whom they, what's the verb? Think best. Only to the family of the tribe of their father, fathers shall they marry. It's quite interesting what God said. If the question is, daughters, who do you think God wants you to marry? God answered it. He said, here are the boundaries. From within these boundaries, did he say just take whoever you're inclined to by impulse? It, that's not what he said, right? It wasn't by impulse, but it did rely upon something with them. What was it? That's what we talked about in Sabbath school this morning. God asked the daughters to use their mind to find out what is the best option? And when, by using their mind to evaluate God's counsel, they would find the best option, God gave them latitude to do that thinking and to marry. That's quite a conclusion to come to. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, that's a lifelong commitment. They could even enter into a lifelong commitment by this method of using their reasoning combined with God's counsel 
but God gave them limits. What was the limit in their case? It had to be inside their own tribe. Now, that's a limit he doesn't give to everybody. That limit applied to them particularly, and why? It had nothing to do with their personality. In fact, what God expected out of them had more to do with their great-great-great-grandchildren than with anything else. It was so that there wouldn't be a confusion over what property was owned by which tribe. You can read more of this story later in the case of these particular daughters. Let me introduce that as like, it's not one of the six points, but it's an important one on the side. Do realize that God often asks his church to do things. He gives them guidelines that might not even be a very personal benefit to them if it really will be a benefit to someone else. And it's fair to accept the guidelines that he gives that way. I'll give you an opinion I have about that. I think that wearing jewelry is not intrinsically morally wrong. I've said enough this weekend for you to know that I don't expect you to believe me when I say something like that. I mean, like like to take me at face value like it's true. But I even see some evidence that before sin entered the universe that there was some jewelry being worn. But I see plenty of evidence that jewelry does cause problems for some people. And it does create pride in some people. And it really distracts many people from what true holiness looks like, a beauty of character. And I submit to God's counsel that when he asks his whole church to boycott jewelry as a way of demonstrating as a body what beauty of character looks like, even if I can't prove to myself that there's something morally wrong with this, I can easily and willingly submit to God's counsel on this for the benefit of whoever it's going to benefit. And I think you can see that if you put it the other way around, that to exercise my liberty at the expense of even a very few souls would be a far too expensive exercise of liberty. Have you read where Paul says that about food offered to idols? It's just what he says. He says, there's nothing wrong with it, but I'm not going to eat it because I don't want to hurt anybody else. So the third point is to find your latitude and watch your attitude. And it rhymes, which can make people not think about it. So I want you to explain what I mean by that. Latitude, that is, find the limits that God has given. And when you have those limits then realize that you have a freedom. There are some value questions that God does not get as very specific as some people would like to get. Know the limits that he's given. Find those limits like those daughters did, and then be sure you watch your attitude because bitterness will cloud your mind to really what those those freedoms are. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, we're looking at chapter 4. Second Samuel 4. And the, we're going to look at three passages here, all in proximity to each other, <clears throat> that are about thinking that didn't work out well. 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 10. 
When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. I just want you to observe the very simple point in this, that here was a man who was thinking things through. He thought through that David and Saul don't get along. Saul's been trying to kill David. Saul's been trying to kill David for a long time. And David wouldn't harm Saul. He had a lot of respect for him. But now God took care of it and Saul is dead. And I'm sure David's going to be very glad to hear this news. Maybe he'll even give me some reward for having had something to do with it. I think he said he had something to do with that death when he gave the news. And it's not clear to me that that was the truth. It might have been a lie. What an expensive lie if it was. But do you understand the man was thinking through that he would get a reward for this, and what did he get? He died. Can you see my point that thinking doesn't always work out well? That's, that's my point. And I'd like you to look a little further. Look at chapter 5 and verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites. This is when the Jebusites controlled Jerusalem. The inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except you take away the blind and the lame, you will not come in hither. What they were saying is that our city is so well fortified that even if the blind and the lame are guarding the fortifications, you're not, you can't get in. They were thinking that David cannot come in hither. But the next verse indicates that David went in What's the word in old, is it, would it be thither in that sentence? He went in there. Can you see in verse 5 that the thinking, or verse 6, that the thinking didn't work out well for them? Sometimes thinking doesn't work out. They were thinking through the fact that they had a great fortification, how strong they were, the great history of Israel not being able to conquer them. They had been in the midst of Israel for a long time, but thinking all those things through just didn't work out. Go forward a few chapters to chapter 10. 2 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 3. And the princes of the children, chapter 10, verse 3. And the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanan their lord. Hanan was the crowned prince. His father had just died. Thinkest thou that David does honor your father? that he hath sent comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? These counselors were thinking things through. David conquered the Jebusites. David conquered some other persons. And so the Ammonites were thinking, David really isn't trying to comfort us. It's a trick. David is sending these comforters just to really see what our fortifications are like. And in view of thinking it through, they treated David's men very shamefully. And then they paid for it. Because David really was being nice. David really was trying to comfort them. There really wasn't any hostility in sending those men there. Do you see that thinking things through doesn't always work out? My fourth point is 
that when something makes sense, don't let that weigh too heavily with you. I couldn't find any way to say this the way it is in my mind. I put, don't put too much stock in it. I mean, we've been talking about how we need to use our mind and think things through. But when I've gone through that process, though my thought is the best I can come to, I don't want to figure that just because I came to it by reasoning that it's certainly true. My mind isn't that good. Reasoning is better than guessing, but even when I'm done with the much better process, I'm not certain that I'm right. Do you follow what I'm communicating? When you're coming to your values, you need to hold your own conclusions tentatively. I mean, you might come to a different conclusion next year than this year if you give yourself latitude to think that way. It's legitimate to say that right now it looks to me as if it probably is this way. And in fact, that's better than just deciding once and for all that it's settled. Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13, and we're looking at verse, verses 1 through 3. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Listen carefully. For the Lord your God proves you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. If I could turn this into a principle that even works outside of the realm of prophecy, it would be that the fact that an idea works, the fact that it succeeds, is not conclusive evidence that it is right. Let me see if I can illustrate this in ways that are relevant to you. There are things that can be done in evangelism that might work better than evangelism the way I do it. They might get more people. But the fact that they work isn't proof that they are right. In fact, according to this passage, sometimes God might even let wrong things work. To do what in the passage? To test us whether we will be dependent on his counsel. And we will certainly fail of that if we aren't going after his counsel. So that fifth point, the fourth one was, the fact that it makes sense isn't conclusive that it's right. The fifth is, the fact that it works isn't conclusive that it's right. The first hint was, that it was really before point one, is that even if it's taught by a very sweet person, that's not conclusive that it's right. Do you understand that a lot of these principles I'm giving you are saying what doesn't work? Because there really aren't a lot of principles about what does work. If I really had to limit myself to what does work, it would be to go and get it. Except for there was that principle, don't start from scratch, because God has been teaching us for a long time. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4. We're on point 6. And I am going to make this the last point. 
which means we're getting 35% through the, the message. Proverbs chapter 4, and we're looking at verse 18. It says, but the path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. One weakness with well-known passages is people don't think about them enough. And I'm afraid that could happen to this passage. The point I'm bringing out about this is when you're finding your values, aim for progress rather than for conclusion. This is especially true when it comes to health. I think that I can't identify a year of my life in the last 15 years that I have not made some change in my personal value about health. Now, if you watch people you know, you'll have seen people that change in both directions. I mean, I routinely meet families who are, for example, newly vegan. And routinely meet families who, when I tell them about my own dietary choices, share with me that at some point in the past that they used to be vegan. And I'm not even talking about veganism. I'm just trying to illustrate an idea that if you want to arrive at true values, more important than the conclusion you arrive at today is the mentality you arrive at today that you're looking for progress, that you want to come closer and closer to what God says, that what you understand today, that you accept the fact that he might reveal to you more tomorrow. Some people try, as it were, to force Jesus to be mean. I mean, you remember what he said, that I have many things to say unto you, but you are not ready to say them. You don't want to, as it were, force yourself to have Jesus say them all to you right now. He knows you very well. He knows what you can handle and about how ready you are for truth. And he is a patient teacher. So the mistake would be when he shows you point A that you jump on it, plant your feet and say, this is my conclusion. Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying to you? You want to conclude that he's right in view of the fact that he might share something more with you later. Then if you ever conclude like this, it should make you so gentle with other people. I mean, A, maybe they haven't been led to where you are yet, and surely you can be patient with them in view of your own tentative position. And if it looks like that they're ahead of you, you might not even have, because Jesus hasn't taught you yet, a way to know whether or not they are fanatics or just more advanced. You might not have any way to know it. Does that make any sense to what I'm communicating? Is it possible that they are fanatics? It's possible. And you certainly wouldn't want to follow them into their fanaticism. Is it possible that they're just more advanced than you? It's possible. And you don't have to figure out which is true. Because who are you that judgest another man's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls, and you and I are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ ourselves. We want to be sure that A, we're standing on what he taught us, and B, we're willing to make progress.
So those are all the points. I want to review them with you briefly, and then we'll have, the choir will sing for us another song, and then I'll have a closing prayer. For myself, I want to have the values that Jesus wants for me. If my values are not going to be shaky and like the wind, I'm going to have to put them on some foundation more firm than who is sweetest. The who is most sweet foundation often leads to retrograde and randomness in people's values. But I'm going to have to go after the council. But the second point was, I can't afford to start from scratch. God has given us a church. Acts 15 is all about the authority of that church. When the people couldn't come to a conclusion, when the church couldn't agree, the church as a whole had something to say, and God expected people to listen to what the church as a whole had to say. You can read that chapter. It's fascinating. I don't want to begin with scratch. But when I come in the point two to listen to what God teaches me through other individuals, am I searching for their conclusions? No, I'm curious about their conclusion, but really I can't put much weight on that. What am I looking for? I want their data. I want to know their reasons. The people who disagree with me, I can't assume that they're mistaken. Or maybe I think they are mistaken their conclusion, but wouldn't it help me to at least know the reasons for the why they think what they think? This point, too, is what allows us to talk at the table about controversial issues without getting so emotional and hyped up. We at least ought to be curious enough to know why other people think the funny things they do. The third point is to know the latitude that God gives you, the freedoms that are outlined in his counsels, and then to watch your attitude into relation to those guidelines. Do you see what would happen to the dollars of Selefad if they would have really decided that they really loved someone outside of their tribe and began to chafe under that bit? Though they had been given a great deal of latitude, by one desire outside of that bound, they could have spoiled their entire happiness and value system and messed things up for a lot of people. The Bible doesn't really say whether or not they did what they were told to do, but I really hope they did. It's like that with many of the values God gives, us to, gives to us as a church. He gives us values that are for the benefit of the people. And since he gave so much to benefit me, isn't it rational that I harmonize my life in such a way as to benefit as many as can be done? The fourth and fifth points were very similar. The fact that it makes sense or the fact that it works aren't good enough reasons to adopt it for my value system. Yeah, that's true. And that last point was that I want to let Jesus be patient with me as he wants to be. So when he teaches me one thing today, I don't want to stick my foot down as if I'm never going to move from this position. I want to accept it wholeheartedly in view of the fact that he might have more for me later. So what am I aiming for? Not so much for conclusions as for progress. Believing that God is not finished with the work he did started in me, but that he will guide me more and more unto the perfect day. I hope you'll come back for more information this afternoon. We'll be favored now with a special music by the choir.